Now, News Talk Radio CJAD 800 presents the CEO Series. Insights from top business leaders. Your host is Carl Moore. Welcome to the CEO Series. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University. The CEO Series takes you inside our capstone MBA class at McGill. Each week, we sit down with some of Canada's, indeed, the world's top leaders to discuss strategy, leadership, and today's pressing business issues. And some of the world's top leaders have spent time with us, such as Justin Trudeau, Mohamed Yunus, Nobel Peace Prize winner, and Joanne Liu, former international president of Doctors Without Borders. This show gives you a thin, well, perhaps not so thin slice of the kind of thoughtful leaders that McGill MBAs are exposed to. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Tabitha Bull, CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Thank you, Tabitha, for joining us today. Where'd you grow up? What, 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 in Ontario or Manitoba, where? In Ontario, so I moved around a bit. My dad worked for uh, the nuclear plant, so he worked for Ontario Hydro. So I lived in Kincardine on the Bruce Peninsula, and then we moved to Port Perry, which is near Oshawa, because uh, he moved to um, the Pickering site of Ontario Hydro. Um, and then I went to school, and they actually moved to uh, downtown to Toronto because he moved to the office. So we kind of followed his work a little bit. But now they live in our home community of Nipissing First Nation. That's where um, they retired. So to me, that's where I say my home is, even though I've lived everywhere. So what what nation are you? So I am Ojibwe. My community is Nipissing First Nation, which is just outside of North Bay, Ontario. So about three and a half hours north of Toronto. Um, so we're Ojibwe or Anishinaabe is, is another uh term that we often use as well. Um, my dad didn't grow up in Nipissing though. He grew up in Serpent River First Nation, which is where his uh, grandmother lived. And um, that's a little further north near Sault Ste. Marie. One of the things that strikes me, one of my initial reactions is that Indigenous people are more community-centered to a, a place than the typical, like I'm Irish and Finnish, and my aunt was actually born in Finland. So <laughs> we've been, we haven't been here that long. Is that a fair statement that there's being indigenous is about community to a considerable degree? Um, yes, but I think a lot of it also is a tie to the land. So, um, you know, when we look back to like where our responsibilities are to the land and when we look to where we originally or our ancestors would have originally trapped and hunted and and moved, we... Um, definitely had traditional territory that that was our territory that we would have hunted and so there's real connection to the land both from a um that's how we continued to prosper but also that we have a caretaker role to make sure that we're also taking care of the land and water in that area also and when we look to treaties across Canada the treaties were signed based on um, great areas of land so not just the first nation proper that you would reside in and that is considered you know land that you would live in um for example so nipissing first nation we're part of the robinson heron treaty and that treaty extends um so there's robinson superior treaty which understandably is lake superior and there's robinson heron treaty which has a number of different first nations that are signatories to that treaty but it really goes a little bit further than sudbury and then comes all the way down kind of to barry and inland, um, but really tied around Lake Huron and north of Lake Huron to include North Bay and into Algonquin Park. Um, and, and when you think about Métis people who many don't have treaties across Canada, but uh, 
to be recognized as a Métis person, it's very tied to the traditional trap lines and where your ancestors would have hunted. And so it's, so that just identity of being a Métis person is very tied to land. And I think that's where we get more um, a connection to a place-based system than an, than an ancestry. Uh, my mom is Scottish though. So, um, and she's Macmillan. So we also have a lot of recognition within my family of our Macmillan tartan and our Macmillan ancestry and Scottish ancestry. I'm speaking with Tabitha Bull, CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. You take your kids up there to kind of see their roots and connect them to that part of the Ontario? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my parents live uh, in Nipissing First Nation. Yeah, so. My dad was a counselor for two terms. So part of the government there for two terms. Um, and they're quite involved in the community. My kids are pretty busy in hockey and baseball and lacrosse sports here in Toronto. So it's not as easy to get up there as we would like. Um, but we go to powwow every September. Um, and my kids also, they're very into sports, as I said. Uh, there's a large hockey tournament over March break where all the First Nations in Ontario play against each other. Um, and my kids play in that for our First Nation. And that's probably their closest strongest tie to community. It's how they've really felt that they're part of Nipissing First Nation. You were an engineer, as I recall, before you got to where you are today. How long were you an engineer? What did you do? I went into engineering, electrical engineering, with the uh, purpose to eventually go back to my community and or other communities and work with communities on uh, on supporting within their community infrastructure and and um, potential projects and, and partnerships. Uh, but initially I felt like I really needed to get the engineering skill and knowledge that I could go back and work with communities. So I initially graduated and did consulting for a number of years, um, doing engineering electrical design uh, across the province. And then I actually went to a project management job for a hydrogen fueling company who was looking to work with Indigenous communities on hydrogen fueling and storage renewable projects um, for not, not that long. Um, and then the blackout happened in Ontario, I don't know if anybody remembers that. So the whole province of Ontario went black. Um, and it was later on found that it was due to a tree that had fallen in, in uh, a area that we were connected to. And um, I was so focused on, on what happened and how we were restoring the system. And every day I was in this great job at this hydrogen fueling company, but every day all I was doing was like, how are we bringing this system back up? How's it going? Like wanting to understand the engineering technical part. And I kind of was like, why am I here and not there? Obviously that's where my interest is. Um, So I applied to the electricity system operator of the province of Ontario and I went there and I worked there for about 10 years. Um, And then in the last five years, I took on a role as First Nation Métis Relations. So working with communities across the province on renewable projects and partnerships and energy planning within their communities. Um, so I did that for the last five years. So not specifically engineering in those last five years, but having that engineering background, being able to really explain the issues and what we were doing to communities was really important. You're listening to the CO Series. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University. And today I'm speaking with Tabitha Bull, President and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Tabitha, how long have you been CEO of the, of the Council for Aboriginal Business? I joined there last September as their chief operating officer. And then um, our CEO was moving on. They went through a full external search with a headhunter company. And 
I received, I was awarded the position the Friday that uh, COVID became a pandemic. What was it like to have COVID-19 unfolding as the opening act to your presidency of the council? You know, when you go for those type of positions, they ask you your 90 day plan. What are you going to do in the first 90 days? You know, they even sent me a book about my 90 day plan. Um, and it's very, it was very different than what I expected it to be. So we told the team on the Friday that I was the new CEO, and then we moved to work from home on the following Monday. So I actually haven't been in the office with my team uh, since I took over the organization. But you were COO, so it wasn't a huge shift in a way. No, no, except definitely a di- it's a real different shift to be, to not have that person to go to for to check in with, or am I on my own? And and with COVID, so we're a not-for-profit organization. Um, so we, a third of our revenue comes from large events like gala events um, that we have about 600 people attend. And uh, we were to have one of those in April in Calgary and one in September uh, in Vancouver. So without that revenue, I didn't replace my position to ensure that I could you know, keep everybody employed through this period. So. I'm kind of still doing both roles at a time. Really looking forward to 2021 when I can, you know, bring in some extra support. We're speaking with Tabitha Bull, CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Coming up, we'll discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the Canadian Council and its membership. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CEO Series. You're listening to the CEO Series with Carl Moore on News Talk Radio, CJAD 800. Hello again, I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CEO Series. We're speaking today with Tamitha Bull, CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. How has COVID-19 affected the organization? So it's very interesting. You know, in March, I I really didn't know what we were going to expect, like what the year was going to bring. So we're a membership-based organization. About a third of our revenue comes from membership. A third comes from our events. And then a third comes from research projects. So we have... Uh, about a quarter of our staff are research staff. Um, so, you know, and we had targets around membership at the beginning of the year, we were about 900 and we had set a pretty stretch target to have 1100 members by the end of the year. When COVID hit, I really didn't know. I mean, we're a business membership. So the impact that COVID has had on businesses, membership to organizations is going to be one of the first things that they knock off on their bottom line expenses, right? Um, so not, I, I really wasn't certain what we were going to expect. We are actually now at 1170 members. And we've brought on some pretty big organizations like Uber and Facebook and Microsoft and Google. So really like seeing that in the IT sector. And then also more recently have brought on Sobeys and Loblaws, Canada Post. So those organizations that are kind of doing well in COVID, um, but also, I think the silver lining to the social justice conversations that are happening in media right now and the real realities of the impact of COVID and any pandemic on the social economic gap has made people think, what, what more do we need to do and how can we connect with Indigenous communities and businesses to support this has been a bit of a silver lining. So your members are largely Indigenous run and own businesses, but Uber, for example, they're not led by an Indigenous person. Why are those businesses involved? 
So our organization, the mandate of our organization is to bring together corporate Canada and Indigenous businesses. So how do we like create the opportunity um, to open the network? How do we ensure that corporate Canada is working properly with Indigenous businesses and community? And our organization has been around over 35 years. Um, Originally was started by Murray Koffler, who founded Shoppers Drug Mart. Mm and, and Paul Martin and a number of other really like innovative forward thinking leaders who saw that there was this real gap and wanted to understand what more they can do. So our membership is about 60% Indigenous businesses and 40% non. You're listening to the CEO Series. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University. And today I'm speaking with Tabitha Bull, President and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. How are you making sure that you were still supporting Indigenous businesses throughout the pandemic, given this growth in membership? We had seen in this growth in membership uh, prior to this, not quite to the same extent, but definitely a growth in my, you know, in my initial interview for CEO, I was really about, and this is part of my engineering background, I think a bit of like, we need to just sit back and make sure that our processes are in place so that we're going to be able to provide the same benefits to all of our members at 1100 members as we have at 700 800 members um so that's a bit where i am like the first 90 days did not go as i expected the first nine days were really about how are we ensuring that all of the programs that are coming out from government are actually working for indigenous businesses and there were quite a few that that didn't that uh indigenous businesses just by the way that they're structured um from a tax perspective um and if they're on reserve there's there's other considerations that they weren't eligible to apply. So our first effort was how are we supporting our indigenous businesses to ensure that they can be sustained through this period. Um, So honestly, I think like we weren't putting as much effort into our corporate members, our large corporate members, but, um, but without us ensuring that our indigenous business could be sustained, then that's really the, the purpose that we have. And I think that, um, has been really recognized both by Indigenous businesses, but also Corporate Canada seeing us doing that advocacy work. And that's kind of where we've seen the growth. Um, and to to be honest, my team is like strapped. They are tired. They are really looking forward to the holidays. We really need to do a bit of a reset to figure out like how are we going to continue to manage this speed. But I'll also say, and this is something that really struck me two years ago, is working for a nonprofit is a very different perspective from a leadership perspective. You have people that are very, very high emotional intelligence people. Um, you also have people that are very dedicated to the work that they're doing. So um, there's lots of studies that say that burnout is very high from uh, um, for nonprofits and nonprofit staff versus corporations. Uh, so I think part is what I'll say that the team really believes in our mandate and what we're doing, and they're they're willing to step up to ensure that we can support that influx of members. Um, interestingly, we've kind of seen a bit of a pivot too, and. Um, where we use, our corporate members used to be more like natural resource extraction organizations. So organizations that were potentially having a direct impact on communities. And now we've seen this switch to businesses who just want to understand what they can be doing. And in this time, there was a real opportunity for those IT businesses to support 
from a, how do you pivot to e-commerce? How do you pivot your social media to start marketing online versus in a retail store? So we were able to find these new connections that didn't take a lot of time from our staff perspective, but were opportunities for us to be connecting um, corporate Canada and indigenous businesses in new ways that um, maybe wouldn't have been as such a, a priority in the past. I'm speaking with Tabitha Bull, CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. What is Indigenous leadership? How is it a bit different than non-Indigenous leadership in your mind? I can't speak for all Indigenous leaders, but a lot of like our beliefs are so tied to the seven grandfather teachings. So those are really about um, wisdom, love, respect, bravery, honesty, humility, and truth. So those are the seven grandfather teachings. They're very important to Anishinaabe culture, but not just they're, you know, always in a different language, but very similar across many indigenous cultures. And, um, and there's something you're, you know, it's not something that maybe was like on your wall growing up all the time, but in all of the teachings and stories and legends that you hear, they're part of that story. So to me, um, that's something we think about all the time. And in, in all that we do, I think the other thing is, and again, it's a seven, but um, a lot of the work that we do and things that we're always supposed to are, be thinking about is what is the impact on seven generations from now? So if we're thinking about resource extraction, as an example, that's a very different conversation at a boardroom table to say, okay, I'm, I'm mining this resource you know, this is a great profit for me. And maybe there's a sustainability conversation. I think there's definitely more of those now with ESG scores, but, but the conversation about how is this going to affect my seventh generation is a lot much more forward thinking. So I think that's part of the, the decision-making process and the time you allow to make those decisions is a little bit different also. And then I think personally for me, and I've seen this too uh, in working with other indigenous leaders is that real respect for your family and the priorities of your family. So um, when I was doing work prior, prior to this role, more in an engagement role, and I would be meeting, you know, with maybe government leaders, or I would be meeting with indigenous leaders. Um, there were times where I had a chief maybe had come to the city. I had never met him before. And we had set a meeting. This is actually a prime example. We'd set a meeting. My son was sick. It was a pretty important meeting and he, you know, he had was in the city. So for us to meet face to face, wasn't going to happen necessarily again. I sent him an email and said, like, I'm really sorry. My son is sick, but I like, can we reschedule? And his immediate reaction was, of course, your family comes first. No judgment, no, um, like he really appreciated that I had this other responsibility that I needed to take care of. That is something that I try to really ensure that I respect with my team that they, if they're not, if their families aren't good, then they're not going to be feeling good and they're not going to be the best that they can be. So we need to make sure that we're making time for them to um, ensure that they feel good in that space at home um, and that they're doing the, they're being the best people that they can. Maybe that's a dad or a brother or a son or a nephew. Um, in order for them to be good at work. We're speaking with Tabitha Bull, CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Coming up, we'll discuss the role of Indigenous business in the Canadian economy. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CO Series. 
This is the CEO Series with Carl Moore on News Talk Radio, CJAD 800. Hello again, I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CEO Series. We're speaking today with Tamitha Bull, CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Is spirituality an element of Indigenous culture that is maybe a bit different than non-Indigenous culture in your experience? It's about a creator that's that's created things. So that's a bit similar to Christianity in the creator space. Um, Of course, we also all have this struggle with spirituality, with residential schools and, um, you know, the religion that was imposed on so many people. And, and there's lots of people who are, who are relearning that. Um, But if you go back to traditional teachings, um, it's not just about the creator, you know, in addition to the seven grandfathers, there are seven animals and the creation story is all about the turtle and that the turtle, this is called turtle Island where we live and okay. creation story is about that turtle, but it took um, all of the animals to ensure that, that we are where we are and that the, the ecosystem works. So it's not so much about a, a single power, single deity, you know, as it is about an ecosystem. And there is a real respect and caretaking role about everything that's around us as well. Women leaders. There's a lot of women leaders in Indigenous culture. Is that is that true? Um, it's, that's interesting to say because I've only really seen that resurgence more recently. You know, if you were to look at like past chiefs across Ontario, even okay. um, in the last like less than 10 years, probably you've seen a lot of younger women take on leadership within their community. Um, and if I look in the business world, um, it is, it is kind of a newer emergence as well, I think. And maybe, I mean, it's important to note that, um, the Indian act, uh, was created by the government of Canada. And it basically said like who was an Indian and who was not. Um, and one thing that it, it included was if you got a degree as a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, any professional degree, you were no longer considered an Indian under the Indian Act. Um, It was all about enfranchisement. So we can't have like professional, it was also illegal as an Indian person to hire a lawyer. So you also couldn't fight against anything. Um, So it's not surprising that we don't see a lot of indigenous people that are in those positions. Um, I mean, that's now been rescinded and those people could have gone back and, and asked but, but if you weren't considered an Indian, you couldn't live in your community any longer um, also. So it kind of removed those professional people from the community. And then if you can't see it, how can you be it? So it, it really created this vast gap in, in seeing new leaders emerge. I mean, I definitely, now I could name quite a few um, really incredible Indigenous leaders. We do see Indigenous women really emerging with this real strength that they have. That, that's hard to fathom. Mm-hmm. How long ago was this? Um, so I'd have to look at when that was, when that part was actually re- rescinded from the Indian yeah. Act. But uh, I mean, Indigenous people uh, got the right to vote after women in this country. And that wasn't that long ago. It's in living memory. Yes, definitely. Okay. I mean, it's almost beyond grasp. I grew up in Toronto you know, a long time ago when it just 
didn't learn any of this. There's a really incredible book called The 21 Things You Need to Know About the Indian Act by Bob Joseph. It really includes a lot of those things that you're just so shocked that happened. You're listening to the CO Series. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University. And today I'm speaking with Tabitha Bull, President and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. How many Indigenous people are there in Canada? Like what percentage and how many live on the reserve or in, you know, in small, small towns or villages versus big cities? So the percentage is about four and a half to five percent. Um, definitely we've seen, so Indigenous people are the fastest growing population in the country. Um, part of that is because people are reclaiming their indigeneity. Myself, um, so my grandmother uh, lost her Indian status when she married my grandfather because he was a Scottish man. Um, though, had it been the reverse, that would not have been the case. If my grandfather was Indigenous and married a white woman, he would not have lost his status. So she did. And in 1986, that was reversed by the Supreme Court. Um, so she got her status back and the first generation got it back, which meant my dad then got his status back also. Um, and then it wasn't until early 2000s that uh, there was another course at the Supreme Court that that really talked about gender inequality and said that the, the grandchildren of these women. So I had my status back. So I think we're seeing an increase partially in Stats Canada numbers because of that, because people are being able to regain their status. But then also just population wise, uh, Indigenous people have children younger than than the average Canadian also. Um, and bigger families too are, are more you know, the norm in Indigenous communities. Perspective of like urban versus on reserve, it's um, like 50%, maybe a little bit more, particularly in, you know, of course not in Northern regions, but particularly more in the in the provinces. I'm speaking with Tabitha Bull, CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Entrepreneurship is top of mind in McGill these days. We've just added an entrepreneurship concentration for the MBA this year. How can entrepreneurs work with Indigenous people and incorporate them into their team? So uh, I will just say um, we've seen a huge rise in Indigenous entrepreneurs as well, specifically. So from our research, uh, it shows that Indigenous businesses are being created as nine times the rate of not. Um, we're closing in on 60,000 Indigenous businesses across Canada. So it's a huge opportunity. Um, but I would also say that 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 innovation and, you know, how are we going to pivot? How are we going to ensure that we're moving with um, the economy and how the economy is changing? We're seeing that also, and, and particularly through the pandemic, we've seen a number of Indigenous businesses who have been able to pivot to supply PPE. Or... So I would say that there's a real opportunity for partnerships um, with other Indigenous entrepreneurs. The, you know, the biggest barrier for Indigenous entrepreneurs is access to financing. And, and part of that is because of a bias within banks on accessing financing, but it's also a part of if you are an Indigenous business on reserve, um, the government still owns all the re reserve land and the people there just use it. So there's no collateral to go get a mortgage or to go get a loan. Um, so there's a benefit there that that can be brought from partnerships from perspective of how do we like go together for financing. And then of course, there's also a benefit to the partner that's not indigenous because there's lots of additional supports for indigenous entrepreneurs. Um, 
And of course, just like shared learnings and diversity that come from any type of partnership. So I think there is a lot of opportunity to look for partnerships. I think there's also a real understanding of, as I said before, being respectful of just the way that Indigenous business might work a little bit differently. Um, There's, you know, in almost all of Indigenous businesses that I'm really close with, like not all of our members, but many, um, most of them have a social impact purpose as part of their business plan. They're not about profit. They're about how do I support my community or give back to my community. That's a key part of many of their business plans. Um, and, and sustainability, of course, is also a key part. So uh, ensuring that you're aligning with those type of values would be important also. We're speaking with Tabitha Bull, President and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Coming up, we'll discuss the impact of visibility campaigns within corporations. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CEO Series. You're listening to the CEO Series with Carl Moore on News Talk Radio, CJAD 800. Hello again, I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CEO Series. We're speaking today with Tamitha Bull, CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. There are a number of groups of Indigenous people in Canada. Do they tend to agree with each other on most things? Do they share the same experiences? What is the CCAB's role in bringing differences between groups, if they have any? I mean, we try to advocate for all Indigenous people, and sometimes those needs and unique circumstances are the same, but sometimes they're not. And it's very important that we respect that they're not. Um, So even if we think about just First Nation people, if you think about the settlers in Canada and that they arrived on the East Coast and as they moved across the country, you see the culture vibrancy on the West Coast is much stronger than it is on the East Coast. And that's because their time with contact is much shorter. So they haven't had interaction with settlers uh, as long as people. So if we look at like the East Coast, the Biatuk people were completely eradicated, that that nation. As we move across the country, we see residential schools, loss of languages, increase of like new religions happening because that contact has happened longer. Um, so that from a cultural perspective is, is very different. The other thing is, is the legalities. So as you move across the country, also you see treaties being signed. Um, and some of those treaties, all those treaties are very different. So our relationship as nations with the government of Canada and the Queen um, are also very different as you move across the country. Um, much of BC isn't under treaty at all. So they've never signed a treaty to say that this is crown land and what are the responsibilities between the two. And that's why we see issues that are happening with what say when, and that conversation is very different. That's also why it's, it's often very different for the Supreme court to make a ruling about all land uh, with interaction with first nation people. So that's kind of just on a first nation perspective, then within first nation governments, and this is kind of what's happening with what say when is um, most first nations had a hereditary way of of naming government so it was a more hereditary line of chiefs and in some communities um like the six nations Haudenosaunee communities uh that was always a woman that was that was chief of the community uh when the government enacted the indian act um around 
how councils and chiefs were elected, it became a voter democratic system similar to what we have in Canada. And that's where you saw in particular in Haudenosaunee communities that women kind of lost that power and right that they had before. Um, But in Six Nations here in Ontario, um, they still have a hereditary chief and an elected chief. But the government of Canada for the longest time only recognized the elected council. So if you're developing land or you want to consult on on land or projects, the government would work with the elected council and the hereditary chiefs, which a lot of community members would have believed in, aren't consulted. So that's kind of what's happening on Witsewin in BC. They've worked with the elected chiefs, elected chiefs have agreed to this, but the hereditary chiefs have not been consulted. So it's kind of, so within a community, that's where you get this divisiveness within a community based on this um, imposed structure of government. And then if we look to distinct groups um, from like Métis and First Nation and Inuit, um, there are definitely some divisions between First Nation and Métis people. Um, And part of that is because Métis people did not sign treaties with the Crown. So their rights are are different and the the Crown has also treated them differently in respect to what their rights are with respect to consultation um, and what their rights are with respect to um, relations with with the Crown. Um, So how do we rationalize that? I think, um, you know, I've been asked many times by BNN or CBC to weigh in on the Witsewin discussion, particularly as a business association. I don't because I haven't been there. I haven't met either leaders. Um, I think it's very important that we respect that it's a very unique situation that's really specific to that community and to encourage people to to reach out directly to that community. So very important that I don't speak on behalf of any community, nor do I speak on behalf of all First Nations. I can speak about my own learnings and, and what I know and Um, even I'm not an elected official for my community. So would also not speak up on behalf of my own community. And, and you'll hear true indigenous leaders often say that they'll say, I don't have the permission to speak on behalf of all Métis people. So I can tell you my own perspective. Um, And I think it's about that education first about why everything is so dis distinct and unique and and what's the history that got us to this place but also about being respectful that we we speak only from our own place and on behalf of the people who have given us permission to do so you're listening to the co series i'm carl moore from mcgill university and today i'm speaking with tabitha bull president and ceo of the canadian council for aboriginal business what do you think about the big clearwater deal in nova scotia recently so clearwater seafoods is uh incredible incredible news It's very distinct from the lobster fishery issue that's happening and has been happening. So uh, Chief Terrence Paul uh, has been an incredible Indigenous leader growing economic development in that community for many years. One of the things that he did, though, that's so important um, uh, is when he became chief, he went out to all of his members and brought them back home. So he actually kind of went on a staff recruiting drive like, okay, you know, these kids have gone to school at these places. So we know we have like this many business grads and we have this many, I'm going to go talk to them and get them to come back home. And he did that. He went and re-recruited all of the community to come back home and grow the community, which is to me like extremely 
important part of the story. I think their point of that self-government that the revenue is going to bring back to the community um, from Clearwater is incredible, but also that Premier has stepped in and partnered with these seven Indigenous communities is a real leadership action also. One thing I think that I'm a bit hesitant about about that deal is they're not changing executive leadership and they're not changing operations. So um, that's great that you're 50% owned by Indigenous communities, but how are you actually having control? So where's the Indigenous employment going to come from? And where's the additional Indigenous retention and promotion throughout the organization going to come from and leadership? Um, so I'd really like to continue to watch that story and see what's going to happen. Initiatives like Orange Shirt Day have grown in visibility. How do you feel about the impact of those kind of campaigns in the corporate role? Do you think they actually accomplish something? I do. I think those type of campaigns and education to me is the like, most important starting point and the most important piece of reconciliation in the country. I think, you know, particularly in schools, they're not they're hard conversations to have. It's difficult to have conversations with kids when they, you know, learn that reality about our history. Um, but it's only really through those tough conversations that we're actually going to grow and move forward as a country. Um, often when I do talks, I open with a quote from Brené Brown's book, Dare to Lead. It talks about us opting out of vital conversations and how that's such a point of privilege that we can do that, that we don't have to wade into these really difficult conversations. And only if we wade into these difficult conversations are we going to move forward uh, as a country, as a corporation, as a business. Um, so I think it's, it's, I think those type of campaigns are an easy way for people to kind of start to learn. Um, it's an easy way for us to start to educate people without them having to say, I don't really know this history because it's difficult, particularly for adults to do. I also think it's a really important way within the school. If you look back to the like three R's, reduce, reuse, recycling, um, it was the kids in school that learned about, like the campaign happened in school on the three R's. And then the kids came home and taught parents about the three R's. And I think in that way, we need to be doing the same thing with the youth. Um, and, you know, you, it, it then permeates as well into business because people want to work for organizations that are sustainable and think about equity and think about diversity and are inclusive. And, and it's important for you to choose organizations to work for that have those same beliefs. So, um, you know, it might take us a little longer to get there, but I think... I think it's really important for us to to create those inclusive spaces. And from a corporation, it's not actually an easy thing for a corporation to say, we're going to do Orange Shirt Day. This is the CO Series. Tabitha, thank you very much for joining us today. This is our last show of the 2020 season. Next year, we'll be starting off the bang with the CEO of Mercedes-Benz Worldwide, Ola Canellis. This show was produced by Marie Labros. We'd also like to thank our technical producer, Marco Campagna. Thank you for tuning into the CO series. Alla prochaine. For more info and full interviews, go to cjad.com now.